Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Robert S. Levinson. He's a best-selling author of nine novels, among them the newly published Arumba in a Waltz Time and The Traitor in Us All, and The Key of Death, Where the Lies Begin and Ask a Dead Man. He's a regular contributor to Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen Mystery Magazines, an EQMM Reader's Award selection three times. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Someone can't believe it, apparently. <laughs> One of your dear friends in the front row. <laughs> A Derringer Award winner for a Hitchcock story, The uh, Quick Brown Fox, currently nominated for a Seamus Award of the Private Eye Writers of America. Stories in years, best anthology, six consecutive years. Yeah, yeah. He wrote his own script, you know that, right? <laughs> he said, here, read this. <laughs> Various, he's also written various novels and original short story collections available at Amazon, Kindle, and other e-book locations. Um, and before I bring him up, I will say that I remember when he got his first book published here, and it's wonderful seeing him blossom like this and grow, and uh, it's always thrilling to have Mr. Levinson here. Please welcome Robert S. Levinson. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> thank you, Noel. Um, thank you all for um, showing up and keeping me from feeling lonely. Uh, I want to apologize in advance for um, what I may sound like to you. You'll notice a difference. I went through a little problem with my epiglottis, and it's impacted how I eat and uh, how I speak. And uh, if you feel sorry for me, it's reason for, book, for buying the book. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Um, <clears throat> as, as I've told some of you, and some of you are going to hear for the first time, it, tonight is truly a case of good news, bad news, or great news, so-so uh, news. Uh, the good news is that um, immediately after Publishers Weekly uh, gave uh, a rumble in Walt's time a star review. The orders poured in and uh, the book shipped out to the point where um, uh, we're now into a second printing, but the first printing never got here. <laughs> that's that's the uh, the so-so news. But um, what uh, I'm suggesting is that because uh, Skylight has always been so good to me, uh, if you're still of the mind to um, buy a copy of Arumba and Waltz Time, please do. Uh, I'll be coming back here to 
inscribe it if you'd like that uh, and be covering the cost of shipping so it won't take any additional monies out of your pocket. And uh, as a special thank you for what amounts to an inconvenience, I've brought some of the earlier titles here and for those of you who do order a book from Skylight, you're welcome to come up and pick one of the earlier titles with my compliments. Generous fool that I am. Uh, I, I t I, by the way, the, 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 first, the first book to get a Publishers Weekly Star Review is, uh, is also in there. It was The James Dean Affair, which also opened at number one uh, uh, on the LA Times bestsellers list. Uh, which was a, a surprise then. So if, if you're a collector especially and you don't have that book, it is a first edition and it may be something uh, you'd like to have. Um, I'd like to, to introduce some special guests right now, but I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, because to me, you're all very, very special. I'm, I'm only going to single out one person, and that's because um, he's he's one of two authors who generously read a Rumbin Waltz time before uh, it was published and gave it uh, some comments that wound up on the jacket, including this, which I immodestly will now read. <laughs> Levinson has done it again. concocted a lethal crime cocktail that mixes Hollywood fact and fiction with a master storyteller's magic wand. And that was written by a master storyteller, William Link, who's right over there. Well, it, if you know Columbo and you know Murder, She Wrote, um, then you know who Bill Link is. He, if anybody, is a master of, uh, of the genre. Uh, I, by the way, he has a collection of Columbo short stories. I don't know if they have a copy of that book here, but if they do, do yourself a favor and pick one up uh, before you leave, or order a copy and they'll get it to you. Bill, Bill personally delivers it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hobby. <laughs> um, I, would you like to hear a little about a rumba in Wallstein, the book you're not going to be able to take home and <laughs> stay up all night reading? Um, you read the whole thing. Uh, tonight, you're going to get part of it because I've got to practice this thing. But I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do a dirty here. I'm, I'm, uh, Joe Sutton, who has a radio show called The Heart of Hollywood, which he's busy transforming uh, into uh, a television show, uh, is here. And I'm going to ask Joe, if he, if he wouldn't mind, to bring that radio voice up here and just read the synopsis that appeared in Publishers Weekly. What do you think, Joe? Delighted. Joe Sutton. Got it. In 1933, Chris, Chris Blanchard's career as an LAPD detective comes to an ab abrupt, ab abrupt end 
after he refuses to look the other way when his colleagues victimize a prostitute. Five years later, Blanchard undertakes, quote, special problems for the MGM studio. One such problem involves actress Marie McDaniels, who comes to his apartment drunk late one night, distraught over having shot her actor husband, Dave Day Covington, and hands over the murder weapon. When Blanchard visits the scene of the crime, he quickly finds evidence clearing McDaniels and sends her into hiding while he looks into the matter. That crime proves to be but the tip of a very violent iceberg. Photographer to the stars, Otto Rothman, also ends up dead, and mobster Bugsy Siegel and some American Nazi sympathizers appear to be behind some of the untimely deaths. Blanchard, a character Chandler would recognize, deserves a series of his own. I wish you would have let me read that at least one time before that. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. Robert. You really, you you really have a radio show. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And now with no intention of topping you. <laughs> I'm going to read a little from chapter one, just so you get a sense of um, what, uh, what some of the, uh, uh, the shouting was all about. Uh, <coughs> a Rumble in Waltz Time, chapter one, December 1933. Prohibition in my future as an LAPD detective ended within a month of each other. After a 19-year-old MGM starlet who'd been celebrating her option pickup with Benzedrine and sidecars <laughs> at an Echo Park dive, was assaulted by a couple of cholos in the back seat of the Chevy convertible she parked in the garbage-riddled alley behind the bar. A pair of cruiser cops crashed the scene. The Vato Locos fled. Instead of chasing after them, the uniforms threw the blousy, stripped-down blonde looker into the cruiser and aimed for Central Division at City Hall. That night, working the cold spaghetti and warm beer shift out of Hollywood Division, I was at Central following up on a series of mob-inspired murders that had spread to Central's jurisdiction when they waltzed in slap-wrestling the handcuffed girl. She was half-naked in torn clothing that revealed a flat chest, smothered in nasty bruises and bite marks, and her desperate orphanity eyes punctuated a battered face stained with mascara. They led her to the desk sergeant, where the beefier of the pair, whose belly hung over his uniform belt like an island of jello, said, This one's a whore no more tonight, Maxie. Unless you'd like us to deposit her in a holding cell and one of us hold down the phone for you while you do some fancy interrogation, his younger and trimmer partner chimed in, his ferret-like face gushing with delight. Both cops laughed like they just invented humor. I might have thought better than to involve myself, but common sense and good judgment never my strongest attributes, had been at their weakest since my wife left me a year ago. 
He had been further bound and blinded five minutes ago in the parking lot by the two quick tastes from the flask I kept under the seat of my unmarked, next to my throwaway 32 with the serial numbers filed off, and my lifetime stash of peppermint lifesavers in Sen Sen. I said, knock off the crap, just make the booking. Until they heard my snarl of a command, the two cops weren't aware anyone had come into the station house behind them. Big Belly wheeled around, a nasty look on his porky pig face, getting ready to say something nastier, when he recognized me and broke out a fake smile. Just joking around is all, Blanchard. We caught the bitch chipping over an echo, her and a bunch of Pancho Villas who ran off. The girl made an undecipherable sound and struggled to raise her voice above a whisper. I was raped and those bulls didn't try catching the guys who'd done it. They told me they'd let me go if I gave them both blowjobs. I told them to try blowing each other. Not something they liked hearing from me. Shut up, bitch, Ferret Face's voice overrode hers. Don't go making it worse on yourself. Big Belly shook his head. The bitch is lying, Blanchard, been threatening trouble since we saw her panties down around her ankles, going on about being some movie star, knowing big, important people, and how if we didn't let her go, it was aces and eights for us. I said, why don't you uncuff her and get your sorry asses back on the street? I'll finish it up from here. Ferretface said, you're not going to believe this damn slut over two of your own, are you, detective? Are you out to steal our pinch? Is that what this is really all about? Maxie, the desk sergeant, frowned and gave his walrus mustache several anxious tugs. He knew me and my temper well enough, had seen it in action when it was fueled by booze and anger. He bounced into the conversation before I could answer Ferret Face. Do yourself a favor, boys, and cover like Chris said. Get the hell back on the street hoping he forgets your badge numbers by the time the sun comes up and the milkmen start their rounds. Big Belly and Ferret Face exchanged body language and silent communications. Okay, okay, Billy, Big Belly said. He held up the key to the cuffs like it established some bond between us and freed the girl, who spit in his wake after he turned and took off with Ferret Face. She pushed back her hair adjusted her clothing, and used the back of the hand to brush away the tears, washing her mascara-blackened cheek. Thank you, she said, in a whisper hampered by a flum-filled throat. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and God bless you. I should have let it go there and taken her home. Instead, I took the girl's statement. A mistake, big, big mistake. Being an honest cop and being a smart cop, they're not necessarily one and the same. <laughs> By daylight, I'd gone back to the bar in Echo Park, found the starlet's car and a few witnesses to confirm enough of her story to recognize she'd been telling the truth, enough to have her sprung uncharged to the custody of a baggy-eyed lawyer with a gimp left arm who'd been dispatched to Rampart by MGM after I advised Maxie, advised Maxie to call her agent and explain the situation. Afterward, I filed a report. 
expecting it to lead to an investigation that would cost those two miserable excuses for law and order their jobs, their pensions, and maybe earn them a deserved Northern California vacation at San Quentin. It didn't go down that way. Less than 24 hours after filing the paperwork, I was sitting across the battered Jackfield desk of an LAP assistant chief who was instructing me to forget what had happened as if it never had happened. Angered at the order and fortified by a mouthful of peppermint lifesavers, I said, the department is already dirty enough, so it's not like I'm adding anything new, Chief. Just unloading four or five hundred pounds of garbage. Dirty? That's how I'd classify what you're trying to do to your two brothers in blue, assholes though they may be. They're not my brothers, Chief. They're just two horny sons of bitches who should have been introduced to the justice system. Justice. The word ring any bells? And the horse you rode in on, Blanchard. For Christ's sake, it's not like they went down on the Virgin Mary. Tell that to the girl. She was up to here in Benny's. The assistant chief moved his hand horizontally to the bridge of his bulbous blue vein nose and up to her fucking gills and booze. He paused dramatically, like you are three quarters of the time, Blanchard. He eased back in his chair and laced his fingers over his stomach, pushed out an insincere smile. Somehow that's never caused the kind of paperwork that could get you in deep waters. Why does that sound like a threat, Chief? He leaned forward with his elbows, propped on the desk, and made a pyramid with his fingers. Maybe because that's the way I meant it? You try to make caca for me, and so help me, detective. I will make caca for you. Uh, and it's not very long after that that uh, Blanchard is obliged to retire from the police force and uh, winds up as uh, a private assistant to Louis B. Mayer at MGM, where all sorts of uh, intrigue begins. And uh, many characters, uh, fictional and otherwise, arrive from page to page to carry the story, story forward. Questions? Comments? Additional applause? <laughs> how, how deeply do you research these things? Um, You're not supposed to having lived through the argument. Well, it, it, <laughs> Uh, the, ni the nice thing is I don't have to uh, research it as deeply as some other authors uh, must if they're writing about Hollywood and show business, whether that era or any other, uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, not this period in particular, but other periods. I lived it. Uh, I was part of it. I know uh, a lot of the people uh, who were in it. I heard their stories and were able to bring them into it. Uh, what I find myself doing most of the time with the books is uh, verifying facts. Something I think I know, I want to make sure, it's, even though I'm doing fiction, it's accurate. Uh, nothing drives me more crazy than reading a book and coming across something I know is just not true, 
when it's treated as truth because the writer has picked up the mistruth of, of, of some other writer in a book he was researching. Joe? Is there like a basic fact or story that you base this on or inspired this particular book? Um, no. No, uh, it, it basically uh, took off by itself. I wanted to uh, get into uh, Hollywood of, of the late 30s. And uh, I write from the gut, I don't write from an outline. So it was, it was more a matter of writing something and that triggering a thought, my moving in that direction, and that triggering another thought. And there is ultimately a point in, in the writing uh, where I'll, I'll start to make notes about what could come next and what should come next. But uh, I, had f I had fun with this period uh, in particular because uh, among the movies being made then at MGM was The Wizard of Oz, and it gave me an opportunity to give my detective uh, a sidekick who was one of uh, uh, the cast members there, one of uh, the dwarfs, uh, whose, name, whose stage name is Tyrone Powell. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what, what became a big part uh, after he tangled with Bugsy Siegel uh, just expanded into more, more and more of a role because he became one of my favorites. Bill? Uh, you have to meet our friend uh, Terry Kingsley Smith, whose mother was a big screenwriter at MGM during Dr. Kingsley Smith during that era. She had plenty of stories that she told Terry about Mr. Mayor, to which her appetite, he used to chase her around her desk, trying to fondle her and do worse. Whoa. So that's a good source. <laughs> and she was a very good Catholic girl. You, you don't, uh, you don't hear me saying, oh gosh, Bill, sorry, too busy. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, you know, you read you read about Louis B. Mayer, and, and there's there's so much that's not true, and there's so, women. there's so much terrible to women. Yes. <laughs> uh, anybody else? I'm not going to sing. I know that's what you're waiting for. Okay. No. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? Um. Four to six months, which is the average for me. The manuscripts usually run about 400 pages, about 100,000 to 104,000 words. Uh, it, it, it's it's like it's in grade now, Phil. Yeah, you know, you start write, you're, you're writing to a point, and you're not sure you're writing to that point. The next thing you know, you're finished, and you've pretty much hit it within a thousand words. David? Are you going to take the uh, suggestion of your character back as a series? Okay. I, I, I'm seriously considering it. Uh, I, I put it that way because I've already written the next book, which um, is called Phony Tinsel. It's, it's, um, it's based on something that Oscar Levant once said. Stri strip away the uh, tinsel of Hollywood and you find the phony tinsel underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's set in an earlier period of Hollywood, uh, 
by 1933. But uh, my intention right now is to test the character in, in some short stories. Uh, I've got a couple of plot possibilities, uh, one that might work for Hitchcock, one that might work for Queen. The um, commercials, the next Hitchcock story will be in the November issue, and uh, I don't think it's Hollywood High Keith. <laughs> What's the difference between the Hitchcock story and the Queen story? It's a magazine that it's in. No. <laughs> no. So you've got one for one and one for the other. Could you have switched? I, I understood it, Marjorie. Um, to, this, to this day, I'm never sure what one magazine or the other likes. Um, so I, what I do is I submit it to one. If it's rejected, I send it to the other. It's re <laughs> no, so it's not like one's procedural, the other one's character-driven or whatever. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I think I've come to the conclusion that I do better with the Hollywood stories at Hitchcock, uh, and I do better with what amounts to uh, 6,000-word novels uh, and Ellery Queen. She really, she really likes full-blown stories that way. She also likes uh, female leads. And she also prints everything that Bill Link sends her. <laughs> everything. Well, I'm going to have to send this one back to Bob because I just bought another one from Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, a, um, do, do you have a, an arc for where your books are going to go, say over a, a five or ten book series, or, or do you just write straight from the gut? Uh, straight from the gut. Yeah. Uh, when I did the... Um, I, am I still understandable? My mouth is very dry and I can't do water. No, it won't work. It won't work. So just, when, as soon as you can't understand me, I, I bring the, the, the uh, translator up here and the thought we do this. Uh, what was your question, man? <laughs> do you have, do you build a character arc over many books? And no, it's, it's a story I used to tell where when I, when I wrote the first book, oh, my only hope was to get the first book published and that was the Elvis and Marilyn affair. I've got some copies here, by the way, for <laughs> if you're interested. Uh, and, and the big surprise came when, when it was finally bought by a publisher who said, what's the next book in the series going to be? And that's, that's how I learned I was going to be doing a series with the same characters. Uh, but after the fourth book, uh, I, I didn't move into fiction writing to, to do a series. I, there were other things I wanted to write. So the, the last five books have all been standalones, and hap happily um, they've been published. <laughs> the character arc really amuses me. What's the character arc in Hamlet? There ain't any. He's <laughs> <laughs> the same at the beginning and the same at the end. Sorry about that. A guy in love with his mother kills his stepfather and dies. <laughs> no. Character arc doesn't change. No. Unless the same. Do you know where you're going at the end? You always have an end. No. In mind. Yes. Oh, you do? You and Bob Parker. Parker never knew where he was going. 
I have a sense of how the book is going to end, but by the, by the time I get there, I have options. And I just have to play with all of them and settle on the, on the one that works best. It was particularly tricky with the James Dean affair where I had those four or five directions to go. And you know, all you do is you flip a coin or you say, no, this one is the one that works best. On, um, uh, not, uh, two books ago, whatever the title was, uh, the, the one set in the music industry. In the key of death. In the key of death. Um, I had fun there because I said, all the endings work, so I use them all. <laughs> And, and one follows the next, follows the next, follows the, and I had a ball. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that was twist upon twist upon twist, as it turned out. Was there another hand? So, yes. Has there ever been a book you've written that you just had to scrap and you were done? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> no, I, I think I'm, I'm like so, so many. Uh, uh, of the other writers I come to know, you finish a book and you just know it's the worst thing you've ever done and you, you want to stick it in a drawer and forget about it. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, uh, and I'm going to say it again, I was floored when I got Bill's comments on, on this one because I certainly didn't expect it. And then Joe Wambaugh came in with, uh, with, his, with his words. Uh, and then I never expected the PW review. I mean, it's just, uh, there, you know, it's like I've been real lucky, real lucky, because there are so many good writers out there um, who, who, don't, who can never find an agent or can never find a publisher, and they can, they can write circles around me and other people. It's just, you know, some people get luckier than others. I know this guy, Daryl James, he, uh, he kicked around for a good long time until he finally found a book publisher. And tomorrow night, Daryl James himself is having a launch party for his well-deserved book. Yes. And in, in honor of that, I'm buying another copy of my books tonight. <laughs> Do we, are we okay on time? All right. Do you ever think when you're writing a book about Um, yeah, yes and no. I, I think, um, and, and Bill would be able to tell me about this, I, I think I've come to write, in, write novels in screenwriter terms, even though I have no intention personally of trying to turn any one of these books into a screenplay or into a teleplay. Because um, it's not what I do. And it, it, it doesn't hold interest for me. But um, I, I, some years ago, I tried writing a few uh, screenplays and read a few books and writing screenplays. Um, and, and I think the thing you learn most of all is get into the scene late now as early as possible. Writing a novel is much harder than writing a screenplay. Because screenwriters are lazy. <laughs> 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 the, uh, you know, the idea. Most of them are trash. Only most. 
Independent. Yes, ma'am. How come S. Don Fitzgerald failed as a screenwriter but was a brilliant author? Of course, he couldn't write a screenplay. I, I, I think it's just, he, he, he didn't quite have that knack. His, his name is, I think, on one screenplay, uh, which he did, he, or he co-wrote it. How is it, Bill? Uh, not too good. <laughs> yeah. but, but he wrote wonderful dialogue in his novels. Wonderful. Couldn't write dialogue in Hollywood. I don't know what it was. Writers blocked too much booze. He destroyed himself. He then could dialogue in. Hollywood. It was the same with Faulkner. Uh, Where uh, Faulkner, uh, Faulkner yeah. who, who could write dialogue, but never really could. Warner Brothers and. Uh, yeah, but he was buddy with Hawks, and Hawks kept him employed. What's the arc of the story of where your books are? Huh? <laughs> what, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> why, where are your books? Why are they not here? See, that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, they never made it. Yeah. 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 It's a simple answer. There was just that rush after PW. The books went out, uh, I guess, in the order of uh, orders received, uh, paying very little attention to, uh, to what was then my schedule. I'm doing two events on Saturday. One, one store is okay. Um, and the other got a partial order. So, uh, and then I think a week later, 10 days later, there's a store that is still waiting for its copies. But what the publisher told me today they're going to do is instead of shipping from their warehouse, they're going to start shipping for anything I'm doing, they're going to start shipping direct from the printer which will speed things up tremendously. I have no copies of this book myself. Um, I just can't wait to buy one somewhere. <laughs> How long have you been here now? Uh, I've been hosting for about 10 years now. How long do you expect to be here in future? Oh, a couple more years at least. But how many authors uh, have passed through uh, these doors uh, since you came to work here? Oh, we've had hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands. All right, think for your next answer very carefully. Of those hundreds or thousands, who's your favorite? <laughs> you, Mr. Levinson. <laughs> you, Mr. Levinson. <laughs> I have no reason to doubt you. <laughs> Thank you for hosting this event, and here is your microphone. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I, there was some history behind that. I you have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang.
You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.